0: Hi, folks. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on The Cream of the Crop, a podcast dedicated to agriculture. We talk to top leaders, share top ideas, and discuss top trends and products. We get to the heart of ag and put the issues on the table. Okay, folks, welcome to Cream of the Crop today. I'm Steve Maxwell, your host, and we have a very special guest here today that I'm excited to have in the studio audience with us. When I think of Dennis Ross, I think of leadership, I think of a patriot, I think of a Person who is deeply involved in our government and our civic duties. Dennis has been in politics. He's a lawyer in his early days, but got into the state legislation as a state legislator, and then moved on to Congress in Washington D.C. He and I met way back in those days, and I've asked him to come today to talk to us about what he's doing now. And uh, Dennis is now at Southeastern University here in Central Florida, and he is heading up the American Center for Political Leadership. He's a great man of influence. And Dennis, welcome to the show today.
1: Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm. Wondering- one of those that was born and raised in Polk County and grew up here, went off to school, to Auburn, then I went off to Cumberland, received a law degree, came back here and worked for Holland and Knight actually for a couple of years and went in-house. And, which is a law firm. Yes. Locally. Yep. And then I was a lawyer in-house for Disney for a while. Then I started my own law practice 30 years ago and uh, was fortunate enough to build that. I um, always had an interest in politics. So to give you an example, when I was a sophomore in high school, I'd raised Catholic. So I went nine years to Catholic school with finishing at Santa Fe. My parents transferred me into Lakeland, which I didn't want to go into first girl I meet is running for class secretary I convince her to run for class president even though she says it's a guy's job I said no but if you run for president I'll run your campaign she did I did she won and she still wouldn't date me but eight years later she married me so we've kind of been politically active ever since then and we believe strongly that public service is a way of life in some way shape or form and I'm not talking about running for office I'm talking about getting engaged in your community and that's kind of leads me to where I am today at Southeastern University having had the wonderful honor of serving both in the Florida legislature and in the United States Congress. One of the things that's concerned me is that we don't teach, we don't appreciate, and we don't recognize the significance of a self-government that requires individual participation. What we're going through now through protests and civil uprising, if you will, is all part and parcel of the history of the United States. It's nothing new. To, it started with the Whiskey Rebellion right after George Washington was elected, and he called in the national troops to quell that. But my point is, is that it's part and parcel of being involved, but protesting is not governing. Governing is establishing the rule of law by which a civil society can succeed and thrive. And so my concerns have been, as I've been involved in the political process for now for well over 30 years, is that we have failed to appreciate how significant it is to teach at an early age the necessity to get involved. And by getting involved, again, I don't mean just voting and walking away. I mean taking what I call ownership of your citizenship, being aware of your surroundings, knowing that your neighbor can be successful with your help, that your neighbor can help you with your success. And despite the fact that we all, especially in social media, are being deluged with so many different opinions about what and how we should think, independent thought is starting to erode. And we're just going along with crowd psychology saying, oh, this is what we need to do when in fact we know better. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to not only advocate for increased civic engagement, but to do so through civil discourse. And one of the things that has been fundamental to the sustainability of the United States is our ability to vet controversial topics and come to resolution. Now, granted, that hasn't really worked so well in the last couple of decades, for whatever reasons, predominantly political. But one of the things we don't teach either is how to have that difficult conversation with somebody. Because we have taken these in such a sensational way and said, this is the issue today, and we need it resolved. And if you're not with me, then you're against me on everything else. That's not life. That's not reality. And for those of us that have been married continuously for quite some time, that's not at all the way a relationship works. You've got to have that give and take. And we're teaching We're teaching that whoever may be your adversary today may need to be your ally tomorrow. So don't burn that bridge. And passion is so important in your advocacy, but respect is just as important.
0: So where do you think this thought where if you don't think the way I think, then we're going to blot you out so that only my thought can get out there. Where does that come from? When did that transition happen?
1: I think you probably have to go back to the 60s when we started seeing, you know, more and more involvement of government. The Vietnam era was very impactful to the United States. It opened up a lot of people's minds to maybe governments forcing us to do things that we don't want to do when we, they can't justify why we're in a foreign land losing American lives. And there was this major pushback from the population, this newer, younger generation, which are now the leaders of this country. And I think they decided we would change government by making government to be all to end all. And therefore, government is the answer. And when in fact, it's not. As Reagan said, government is the problem. But when you're in this process, you want to get something done. So you sensationalize it to the point where you say, if I don't have you now, you know, I'll never make it. And then you give in, and then the next thing you know there's another issue tomorrow that's just as important and the same argument is made I think we fail to recognize the significance of the individual by that I mean that we don't recognize people's ability to be self-fulfilled in understanding who they are and what they want to do and we take them for granted and then they themselves because they don't understand their self-worth they look for identification they look for somebody to relate to and so therefore I'm going to go with you even though I know it's not the right way this I think has a lot to do with the fact that we don't teach. Again, it goes back to fundamentals, that we don't teach that the most amazing thing about this country is an individual self-determination, and that the system of government that we have allows for self-determination, meaning that a person, regardless of their ethnic background, their wealth, or their geographic place of birth, can become anything and everything they want to come to be. American dream. But our history is replete with that. I've probably done 30-some two-minute videos on American history, and ordinary people who have risen to extraordinary means and, and done extraordinary things just because of their passion and the opportunities that the United States allows them to have. That's the uniqueness of us. And I think, Steve, it goes back to answer your question a little bit quicker, is that the reason we have it the way it is now is because we don't allow people to succeed in their fulfilling desires because we take them and say, we need you now. And you've got to be with us. If you're not, then we'll always be against you. It's human nature to want to be accepted. From my
0: perspective, it comes down to two perspectives, right? After the earthquakes, me and a group of people went down to Haiti, and that was my first time really in a third world country. Other than, you know, Mexico, I don't consider a third world. This was really a third world country. I think every student before they graduate from high school or college should be required to go to a third world country, at least for a week or two. It didn't take long to understand what we have here. I think a lot of issues we have, we don't understand our founding fathers put a system in place, right? correct me if I'm wrong here, but they put a system in place where the people were in charge, but they were allowed, and by God giving us certain individual rights, we are allowed to pursue your dreams. In my words, I call it reaching your full potential, which is the parable of the talents, right? In the Bible. Right. So it's all about reaching your full potential. Here's a system that allows you to do that. And it's not perfect. And our founding fathers weren't perfect, but the document they wrote was pretty darn close.
1: It absolutely reflects the fallibility of man. By that, I mean They knew that a monarchy wasn't going to work. They knew that a dictatorship wasn't going to work. They knew that self-government could only work if there were checks and balances on each individual because each individual due to temptation is going to make mistakes. And that's why you have a deliberative process. That's why it takes forever to get a piece of legislation not only filed but then gone through the process and then having to pass out of one house to the next house and then make it to the president and then undergoes judicial scrutiny. I mean, that was a deliberative process intended to make sure that we as a nation didn't overreact to situations. And now in a world of instant gratification and social media of instant news and 24-7, we want things to change right away when in fact our system was never designed for that. It's something, again, we need to teach better. And And
0: again, that comes back to human nature, right? You can make a knee-jerk reaction where how many times we opened our mouth we said, you know what, if I just kept my mouth shut? You know, it's human nature. So our whole system is built around protecting ourselves from our own human nature.
1: And one of the things that we focus on in my program at the American Center for Political Leadership at Southeastern University is the term leadership. One of the things that we've been trying to raise the awareness of is highlighting statesmen, highlighting people who are genuine leaders that have certain principles. You know, leadership is not a title, it's an action. And one of the things I learned about the political process is as long as we give you a title of leadership, then you stay within the confines of where we told you to be. And even though you're not exercising leadership, you're at least a leader because it's entitled. But once you start exercising those prerogatives that you think are necessary, you move outside of that realm that you've been invited to, but you're actually exercising leadership. And so leadership to me is something that is so desperately needed, but yet so hard to find in this country. Whether it be ego-driven, whether it be financial-driven, people want to have the satisfaction of knowing that they're recognized because they're somebody. And so we give them a title of leader. And yet the greatest leaders of this nation have come out probably as humble people who did not intend to be leaders, but yet because of crisis, because of the situation, rose to the occasion. I don't want to see us have to have a crisis every time we need a good leader. I want to see us be able to recognize through our history that good leaders are made up of certain qualities, humility being one of them, integrity being one of them, listening, you know, being decisive. We need to invoke this standard of leadership that we require out of our leaders. Another.
0: Courage. courage. You got to have courage, one of the great virtues. You know, George Washington talked about a lot, but you've got to have courage especially in this day and age. You can get blasted in the social media world for just taking a stand. And it may be the right stand, but if someone else doesn't like it, now you got, you know, 10,000 people pounding you. It causes me to think twice and retract, but you got to stop yourself and say, wait a minute, this is the right thing to do. So I'm going to exhibit courage here and do it anyway.
1: It's the right thing to do. Leadership is lonely, but it's so necessary. Our history is replete. Look at Lincoln. Lincoln was one lonely man. Oh, yeah. <sighs> he was torn, but he knew what he had to do. And we couldn't have asked, especially from a divine perspective of a better leader at a better time in one of the worst times of our history. Everybody can talk about who they great celebrity is and who their great athlete is. But where are the great statesmen? Where are the people that are truly into it for the greater good and not for themselves? And I think we all want to be that way, and we all can be that way at whatever level, whether it be in our communities, whether it be in our schools, our churches, our nation, our state. We each can play a role to be that type of leader. But we have to have one thing. We have to have the common good.
0: Dennis, if you could go back and you had all power for a day and you could change anything in Congress right now to bring about what you just described. What's one or two things you think would be decisive in changing that mentality up in
1: Washington, D.C.? From a practical perspective, if I were Speaker, I would allow votes on issues where I knew they probably wouldn't pass, but at least to have the day to be heard. One of the things that my eight years of Congress is that we wouldn't bring a bill to the floor unless we knew it was going to pass. Now, we've got issues back home that are crucial to me and to my constituency that my leadership may not like. But I've got a groundswell of support, and I want to have it heard. And I want to show my people back home that I have the ability to have it brought before Congress. Well, if you can't get it passed, we're not going to bring it up. Well, you know, let that be my problem. Let me bring it up and let me go back home to my people to say I'm fighting for you and we're going to continue this fight. And so one of the things that concerned me was that we don't use this process of vetting in a public form the way it was intended. You know, the debate is structured. The vote is foregone before we ever have it. And you posture to now do either damage control before the vote is taken or to take congratulatory praise for how the vote is taken. And to me, that is not the process that was intended by our founding fathers. It is a process that needs to be vetted. And it requires me to be more of a give and take with you. You and I might have polar opposite opinions about how this country should get to where we want it to get, But you need something and I need something to further that goal of getting there. So therefore, you're willing to give in to me and I'm willing to give in to you. That's the way the process was intended to work. We've seen this polarization come around because it's either all or nothing. What really bothered me is we could have done health care reform. We could have done health care reform in the first two years that we took over the majority in 2011 to 2013. We could have done better financial services reform. We could have done so much more in tax reform if we had been doing as a give and take. You know, the Affordable Care Act, Obama. Here was all one-sided. It was all the Democratic Party. Tax reform that we did was all one party. No one party has a monopoly on good ideas. It is part of the process because it requires trust, but it's so hard to say, okay, we'll give in here, you'll give in there, and then we'll reach a resolution. But some of the greatest legislation ever gone through our nation has gone through with bipartisan support and through a consensus process.
0: How do you feel about term limits?
1: Let me answer it this way. I never wanted to make a career out of serving. I didn't self-limit myself. I knew when it was time. Eight years was enough for me. I think if you're going to have term limits, it has to be 12 years. And the reason I say that is because when I was in term limits in the Florida legislature, you had people running for speaker before they were elected to the legislature because they knew that in six years they had to be there. And so they spend their time focusing on popularity and not performance. And I think that's been a problem in the state of Florida that has not allowed us the quality of leaders that we need to have. But if you have 12 years, you're not on a path to try to be speaker in eight. So I have no problems with 12 years of term limits. I have no problem at all. a term limit on a president, you know, eight years or two full terms, it wouldn't bother me to see that. What it would benefit us in is that those members who are in such things thick partisan districts who stay there for 30, 40 years would not be able to do that. And depending on your party, for example, Democrats recognize seniority. If you've been there 30 years, you're going to be chairman of your committee for as long as you're there, once you reach that seniority. Republicans have a six-year term limit on chairmanships, but that's why you're seeing a lot of Republicans get out right now, because a lot of them have served as chairs, and now that they're in the minority, they realize it's going to be a while before they get back, and they don't want to hang around, so they're retiring. I have no problem with term limits as long as it's reasonable. And by that, I mean give them good 12 years,
0: and I don't know why anybody would want to do this for more than 12 years. I think the general public, too, can see that you get embedded 20, 30 years in that place, and it becomes counterproductive for the citizen a lot of times. You know, they're building their career and their wealth, you know, based on their position in Congress.
1: When I first got elected to Congress, I met John Dingell. John Dingell was elected to Congress and had been serving in Congress since before I was born. Now, I'm 60 years old. Okay, so this was 10 years ago, and he had been in Congress longer than I had been alive, and before that, that, his father had the seat. He's since passed away, and his wife now has that seat.
0: That would be the opposite extreme of a term limit, for sure. (laughs) That's for sure. But it happens. I get a lot of questions on on the street. I want to pivot back to what you're doing now in the civic thing. How do you see these new students coming in, accepting your role there at Southeastern?
1: It's fabulous. It's fabulous, and I'll tell you why. We do a capstone program, and we take a few students, and they spend the spring semester on campus. We bring in speakers. We challenge them to learn how to public speak, to learn the fundamentals of the Constitution, to learn about the branches of government, how things work, why we have a press, the importance of the press, the bureaucracy, why lobbyists exist and the necessity for lobbyists, if you will. And then we go to D.C. and we spend about a week in D.C. and we have a chance to meet with members of Congress, senators, members of the cabinet. We've met with the president's chief of staff twice. And they come back and they say, wow, I didn't know this was like this. And what's more important is I didn't know that these people are there or just like me when they were my age. We met with Dr. Ben Carson one time with my students. this time we'd go meet with somebody, I'd have one of the students do do the research and lead the discussion. And this student was absolutely astounded how he was raised in public housing and in poverty by a mother who couldn't read, and he didn't know that, and would challenge him to read and go to school and to make his life better. And here he becomes the head of neurosurgery at John Hopkins, and now he's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. This has an impact on these students' lives because they realize, especially at that age, when you're looking and thinking and wondering, that if you just stay focused and you persist, and faith has a lot to do with it too, I'll tell you that, that there are opportunities that you can overcome and succeed. Tell you one of the things we're working on. I'm working with a couple other universities: Ball State University, University of Minnesota, Augsburg University, in collaborating to create a curriculum of what we're speaking of, of civic engagement, civic renewal, of teaching civil discourse, and having that replicated as a required course in college campuses throughout the country. We're seeking a grant proposal right now with a foundation, and we feel pretty confident we would hopefully be in line for that. But we want to make this as part of everyday college curriculum as we possibly can, because one of the things I tell people is it doesn't matter what your profession is; government's going to be involved in it. I don't care if you're going to be a social worker, if you're going to be an accountant, if you're going to be a librarian, the government's going to be involved to tell you how you're going to be doing your work. And if you don't know how that government influences you and how you can influence that government, then you're going to be a victim of what that government does to you.
0: But tell us again, some of our listening audience now is nationwide. So uh, where is Southeastern University?
1: Southeastern University is a uh, private Christian college, started as a Bible college in 1935. It moved to Lakeland, Florida then, and was a small theological college. Over time, under the last two presidents, they have really liberalized their curriculum to take on almost all disciplines in the liberal arts, including uh, the School of Business, archaeology, education. I know I'm going to leave some out here. And they have grown to now 10,000 students. But they also have something that's very innovative. They have 190 affiliates across the country. They will affiliate with large churches and large organizations and be able to offer an accredited college degree program at a very cost-effective price. I have to give their president, Dr. Engel, a lot of credit. He's been very innovative on this. And when COVID hit and higher education took a serious hit, it also hit Southeastern. But because they are already delivering a product online and remotely, they were able to adapt, finish the school year out without much interruption. And then my work at Southeastern is the creation of the American Center for Political Leadership, which, again, was a brainchild of Dr. Engel, who uh, had approached me when I was in Congress. And my concern was that we're not teaching, we're not incentivizing kids to get involved in this process. I think it needs to happen at an earlier age, but at least if we can get them in college. I'll give you an example. I guest lectured to a theology class, juniors and seniors, about 25 of them, explaining to them why it was so important for them to get involved in this process, especially as Christians. At the end of the discussion, I said, okay, out of you all from across the country are in this class, who Could name a U.S. senator. Not one could name a U.S. senator. In fact, one of the students said, "Weren't you one once?" I said, "No, I was not." But that had me concerned. You know, they're going out to do their ministry, and yet they don't know who their elected officials are. Give you an example: Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. When she got elected in her primary, 13% of the voters showed up to vote in that election. So she's going to represent 700,000 people, and she gets elected with a little over 14,000 votes. What's wrong with that? Where's everybody else? And now she's elevated on a national stage. Being talked about as a vice presidential, you know, candidate. And you're thinking with only 14,000 votes, she won her primary.
0: Diametrically opposes the... Everything. System, everything we yes. have here in this country.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then we complained. Since I'm at a Christian college, I tell them, I said, you know, in the 1950s in America, 90% of the American citizens identified themselves as Christians. Now it's over 70%. So it's dropped a little bit. So if over 70% of the American people say that they're Christians, why aren't they voting? If they believe that this is something that's absolutely necessary, for whatever reason, you can make up an excuse. I don't like the candidates. It's just too difficult for me to get out there and vote. The lines are too long.
0: Yet these people are determining our future. They are determining yeah. our so future. It's, it's very important to get involved.
1: But to stay involved. We need leaders and we need leaders who understand they're going to be attacked. They're going to be ostracized. They're going to be you know, questioned, but they will be successful because the history of the United States has shown that all of our great leaders have been through the fire and they have been good for this country because of it. Well, I want to thank
0: you for doing what you're doing right now. Well, thank I think you. it's absolutely. I think it's a passion, but it's all about influence, right? You're influencing the young minds that are coming up in the right way. Thank you for coming by. Thank you for serving our Congress and the state house also. And thank thank you you for all you've done in that arena. And anyone who's listening, who's interested after hearing Dennis, maybe you have children about college age. You want to look up Southeastern University here in Lakeland. It's a great school. It is. I'd love to welcome you to visit the campus and send your children here if possible. So thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Everything. Thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast has been a presentation of Has Media, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Highland Ag Solutions and visit our website at highlandhasit.com.